Very good. Another complicated issue. Tackled. I have never sweated so much. Magic Osha Ball. I'm fine as long as my water is okay. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode three of the Bikita podcast. Thanks for joining us last week where we discussed the effects of DDT contamination off the Catalina coast. Uh, we also discussed Cal OSHA's new standard for COVID-19 and the new NIOSH approved face mask without an exhalation valve. On this episode, we're going to be talking about a couple of explosions. One that happened um, a little more than a week ago at a chemical plant. And then the other one is an ongoing investigation of the Beirut explosion that happened back in August of this year. And then to line up the conversation, our last article involves the EPA redefining the waters of the United States under the Clean Water Act. Uh, as usual, we're going to kick it off with our OSHA COVID-19 tips for this week. Yeah, so the tips for this week on 12-14, the OSHA tip of the day was avoid putting your coworkers at risk. Stay at home if you are sick which seems obvious. How many times do you go to work and someone's sick and you're like, I wish you hadn't come to work? I mean, I've had example, like I've had instances where I have approached somebody who's been sick. Like someone said, oh, I have strep. Strep is like very contagious. There are they're like, I think I have strep. And I'm like, you shouldn't be here. You should need to go home. Like what, the, what are you doing? And they're like, no, it's fine. I'll just do a couple things. I always leave. I that I think last year I got sick at the beginning of the year after I flew back from visiting my parents in Utah and I came down with the flu and I got there in the morning. I hadn't, it felt like someone, like a train ran into me the night before. And I was like, I don't feel great. And my boss was like, yeah, you should go get that checked out. And I did. And I was out for like three days. I was like, I don't need to be here and get other people sick. I mean, I think most people think that, you know, they have to be at work in order to get work done. But, you know, getting your coworkers sick is definitely not the way to go about it. Well, I have a feeling after the whole COVID thing is over with, people might have a different attitude about it. Which would be good. Yeah. Uh, the second uh, COVID-19 tip of the day by OSHA was never use portable generators indoors. Is that a COVID tip? It's the tip from 1215. I try not to be political, but this is a Trump OSHA coming up with these tips. So. Yeah, it's like don't sit in your garage in the with the car on and just hang out. Don't put a generator indoors. I suppose if you don't put a generator indoors, you won't die from COVID. How are you going to keep your beer cold, right? Like you got to, you got to power that, you know, mini fridge. Asking the real questions. Well, it's a good tip. Maybe they got winter tips mixed up with COVID tips. 
the next one on 1216 was use face coverings to protect workers and customers. So this has been a weird issue to for safety, I think for safety people to approach because we are trained to make sure that people are fit tested, medically cleared, and that they wear certified respirators. And now like now the big push is to, to get people to wear um, for public health reasons, not occupational safety reasons, to wear uh, any kind of face covering. Um, and and I and one of the big um, sticking points that a lot of people turned into a political fight over was that, like Fauci said, that they don't, that face masks don't do anything. And, and I think that that, my, what I believe is that that um, comment comes from uh, a belief of, like, we don't certify people to wear cloth masks. We don't certify people to wear face, like, um, like balaclavas or whatever, because, um, those aren't made to protect you. But now we're in a different place, right? Now we're in a place where it's not really to protect you, it's that the mask is there to protect other people in case you might be sick and you don't know it. So, very important. And it bothers me, I go out you know, and people are like, I don't wanna wear a mask, it's my own health. And it's not about your health. When you wear a mask, it's about protecting other people. And so when people say, and even Trump said this, it's patriotic to wear a mask. That's because when you wear a mask, you are protecting other people, not yourself. I mean, I'm sure there's some level of protection for yourself, but it's mostly about if you're sick, you're not gonna be spewing your virus all over the place. Yeah, which I think is, you know, the people tend to forget that it's, it's less about, you know, you, and more about, you know, protecting the people around you. But if everybody's doing it, then, you know, you're, then you're contributing to make sure that, you know, you're not getting sick. Yeah, I said it in an earlier episode. If everybody would wear a mask, we'd probably end, not probably wouldn't end COVID, but we would probably stop community spread. Mm -hmm. Because if everyone wears a mask, then it's not gonna go everywhere. And what that means is that you stop doing things that make you take it off like eating yes <laughs> going to restaurants i mean yeah. i don't want restaurants to go out of business like that's why that's why congress needs to do something and apparently they are as of tonight but it's a little late i mean it could have happened a little faster they're, they're shooting for the uh the herd immunity what they're going for about her, so if we were actually serious about a herd immunity uh, strategy, that means that about 2 million Americans would die um, before we got there. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I recently read an article that the Trump administration was like pr promoting herd immunity. I mean, we're not going to talk about it, you know, on, uh, on this episode, but you know, if, if anybody out there wants to, you know, hear more about that, we'd be glad to discuss that. I mean, if you're okay with 2 million people dying before it gets resolved versus, you know, at this point, 400,000 people dying. So the next one we got on 1218 was train the least experienced to the most seasoned worker on safe work practices. That's a great idea. Well, 
you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So, you know, you might as well put the effort into like getting those people up to speed because if they're not, those are the ones that are going to be holding you back. And from a safety standpoint, you know, somebody new comes in and gets hurt, then there's a whole lot of time and effort, you know, put into doing investigations or root cause analysis or anything like that to try and work that stuff out. Yeah. Everyone needs training, no matter who you are. That's true. Training is important. So that's what we had for the OSHA tips for this week. Sweet. Thank you, OSHA. Thank you, OSHA. Do you think, I, I feel like, you know, the, like the magic eight balls, right? Like, I feel like the OSHA tips, you know, are, are so easy, right? Like you make a magic eight ball that had, I don't know, 20 OSHA tips in it and just shake it real good. And that's how they come up with the tips for the week. That's probably what they do. They probably think it's really magic too. It, magic, the magic OSHA ball. Magic OSHA ball. I like that. All right, so, you know, we got a couple articles that we're gonna go through today. Um, you know, we'll start off with the first article that we're gonna discuss, which was uh, about a chemical plant in West Virginia. So this plant, uh, so this, this article was from the New York Times. The incident was on Tuesday, December 8th. Uh, so it was a little, a couple weeks ago. So there really hasn't been any sort of um, follow-up on, you know, what they think had happened or what had happened during the explosion. Uh, so we're just going to be going off of like the incident itself. So that explosion happens on Tuesday, December 8th. So Southern West Virginia in the, the Charleston area, um, you know, this, this specific area you know has been in the news before because there's been like a, a number of incidents in the southern west virginia area the charleston area specifically uh related to you know like chemical incidents so we'll we'll discuss some of those but in bell uh about 10 p.m on tuesday december 8th there was a, a loud explosion that ended up sending shrapnel across the kanawa river and there were three in, three people who were working in the plant at that point in time. There was one individual who was killed in the explosion and two others who were injured. So the, 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 the blast itself had sent debris flying, you know, more than a, a mile from the plant. And, you know, according to Optima Bell, who is the the owner of the the chemical company you know those operators were you know evacuated evaluated at the hospital and then released but the you know the, the third operator had, had passed and then officials you know within officials told residents within a two mile radius uh in the blast at the town of bell about 15 minutes southeast of charleston so they had everybody in the area shelter in place canceled a whole bunch of uh, schools 
on Wednesday as a precaution. They don't really know exactly what had initiated the explosion, but there, uh, that facility uh, processed dry chlorine and, and methanol. So I don't know if you know much about dry chlorine and, and methanol, but they're not two chemicals that you really want to be, you know, storing in, you know, significant volumes next to each other because, you know, there is the potential for an explosion. Bleach being chlorine or chlorine is an oxidizer and methanol is an organic and combine the two and you get a nice heated up explosive reaction. I mean, if yeah, it's in a the, closed vessel. The fire triangle. Right. Right, you get something that, you know, liberates oxygen and then, you know, organic material and all you need is a matchstick. Sometimes you don't even need a matchstick, just heat or friction or static. That's why they're so bad. So the, the explosion had, had happened at 10 PM, right? And, you know, that's when all sorts of incidents happen, you know, that happens on Fridays, you know, when everybody's trying to like, you know, go home for the weekend, it happens on the overnight shift, you know, so there, there hasn't been any suggestion of like negligence or anything like that at this point, because uh, they're still going through the investigation. But the preliminary information was that, you know, they had a, a 1200 gallon dryer that had become overpressurized at some point. And, you know, they, they processed the chlorine and the methanol uh, because it's like a sanitation product for them. So that, that vessel that they used to dry the material, you know, appears to have like ruptured at some point, you know, in the night and that's what caused the explosion. There's lots of examples of these types of explosions happening. I looked up, I looked up a few. Um, some, one, one that kind of stuck out at me was it, chlorine, uh, well, it's chlorine gas, but just the fact that it's an oxidizer, like that chlorine was used in a lot of um, roadside bombs in Iraq, uh, like pressurized vessels with chlorine. I don't know if you've ever mixed like bleach and, isn't it drop of, well, uh, 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 no, sorry, <laughs> thinking of something. Bleach and ammonia? Yeah, well, it reacts violently. I mean, it's an oxidizer. Um, whenever we were at Triumvirate, I don't know if you were there yet, uh, maybe you were, but I was sitting in the office one day and there was a linens company down the street. This is in like 2006 or 2007. And, uh, and I was happily working in the office. I was like, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to go to a client site today. And then of course, like the linens company down the street has some kind of a reaction with like one of their cleaning, um, like drums of like solid, probably like some kind of bleach product and it like off gassed and like sent like, it was like between 15 and 20 people to the hospital, including oh some firefighters. And we had to go down there and like deal with it. And at that point it was all reacted off. So there was no gas. Plus they had dragged it out of the building and into a parking lot. And it was, it was like, no joke. It was at least 95 degrees that day. And they made us suit up level B everybody was worried about me and the other guy who was like going in there to clean it up because i have never sweated so much you take off like a plastic suit like i've never had so much water pour out of a suit that i wore um 
it was hot. Anyways, sorry, I, we digressed. But yeah, so the yeah, so this company Optima Bell, so they so they have two manufacturing plants in the U.S. So one of them is in um, Bell, which is outside of Charleston, and then they have a, another one in in Georgia. But both of these locations. You know, according to the manufacturers, say that they process, you know, high energy and high hazard uh, sensitive chemistry on the, on the large scale. So, you know, I'm sure that whatever comes of this investigation, you know, there's going to be some sort of, um, you know, repercussions, whether they look at changing the process in both facilities. But, you know, anytime there's a death or like a major environmental hazard like or uh, incident like that, you know, there's definitely some, there's definitely, you know, a pretty substantial investigation because there was 20,000 people in that area that ended up had, having to shelter in place. And the interesting thing is too, that, you know, this area of West Virginia is referred to as the chemical valley. So it basically starts, um, you know, up the Kanawha River. So on the Ohio, West Virginia border. And there's been like a number of incidents over the years, you know, this explosion, you know, recently, uh, you know, more recently, but in 2008, they had, um, you know, right around the same area at Bear Crop Science, they had um, a methyl isocyanate explosion. So I don't know if you recall, like the incident that was in Bhopal, India, where those tank, the pesticide tanks exploded. You know, and there's, I don't remember the exact number of deaths, but there was more than a few deaths and uh, methyl isocyanate was basically, you know, released from these tanks that they had there. So they had a similar situation at uh, Bear Crop Science with methyl isocyanate that was released. And there was, I believe there's a, I'm looking at it right now. And for those who aren't familiar, the Bhopal incident is what instigated the whole Community Right to Know Act in the US. So um, what happened was overnight in Bhopal, a manufacturing company had a release of the isocyanate gas that killed thousands of people in their sleep. Um, and nobody knew at the time in the local community what that company was actually manufacturing. So that's where the whole community right to know app came from. So yeah, so that was the Bhopal incident was in 1984. It was thousands of people died. The one at Bear, there was two people killed, but it was a very similar situation. You know, they, they processed the same chemicals. They were storing it in, you know, a similar fashion. Unfortunately, there's way too many stories of this. Chemical. Yeah, so this is just an, another, you know, feather in their cap, I guess, you know, for incidents in the, the Charleston area. I mean, it just shows you that, you know, wherever you live, like, you know, that, that you can be affected by something like this. I, uh, I looked up the, so the, chem, the chemical safety board is a, the, like a, they, they investigate um, U.S. chemical safety accidents. This one, they haven't listed as an investigation yet. I mean, maybe it's too soon for them to decide to take it up, but like they had incidents from November on their list. So maybe this is one they'll, they'll take on also. Maybe that'll be an update for next episode, if we don't forget. If we don't forget. <laughs> <laughs>
It seems like they responded pretty fast to the uh, the incident, though. It said that they uh, controlled the fire around midnight, so if it went off at 10, and I mean, it took him two hours. Is that standard? Is that pretty standard uh, amount of time to take care of an incident like that? It depends how much hazmat is involved. So you, so you would expect the fire department to respond within five to 10 minutes, right. depending on, I guess, how remote you might be. I don't know where this plant was, whether it was far away from a fire department or not, but some chemical fires burn for a long time and you can't stop them or it's not worth it to try to stop them. Like you put too many people at risk trying mm -hmm. to fight a fire. Um, I think that in this particular incident, there's not enough information to really know, but I guess within a couple hours is pretty good. My guess is the fear they had with the surrounding community was because chlorine was involved, that chlorine gas would, would disperse around the community and chlorine gas is very bad to inhale. Like it'll, it'll burn your throat, your lungs. That's yeah, they, they said that they could smell you know, when officials arrived on site, they could smell chlorine when they arrived and the site stretches more than 700 acres, right? So that's a pretty significant swath of land where, you know, they were smelling chlor chlorine. But I mean, when they talk about toxic gas, I mean, gases are considered toxic, not only if they're like bad for your health, but if they burn you. So I think most really toxic gases burn you. Like when we, in our triumvirate days, were uh, taking care of poison inhalation hazards, I remember wondering why they were always so hazardous, because I was very new to the profession. And whenever I'd look them up, they were almost always corrosive. It would be like if you inhaled that, it would burn your throat and your lungs. And if you burn your throat and your lungs, then you're very likely to, to have a, a very difficult recovery or if it's bad enough, you'll die. And the, the way that those chemicals are rated, because this is a DOT classification, all that stuff's tested on animals. So if you expose a rat to something that's corrosive, it's gonna burn its lungs and kill it. So um, that's probably why they're, most of these PIHs are. Yeah, fixation is not a good way to go. All right, Barn, you wanna bring us to the next article? Article number two. The Beirut explosion, it happened in August, August 4th, 2020. Um, it was a major explosion in uh, Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. It was a, a, it was a port city. Uh, the explosion killed about 200 people. It wounded about 6,500 people, caused about 12 to $15 billion worth of property damage, left 300,000-ish people homeless. And they're saying it was caused by an explosion involving 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that had been left unattended for about seven years. Um, in addition to the ammonium nitrate, there's, they're saying that there was also um, kerosene gas, ga gas oil, about 23 tons of fireworks, and five rolls of slow burning detonation cords that they use for mines, in addition to 1,000 vehicle tires. So um, I guess uh, ammonium nitrate by itself isn't gonna catch on fire, but when, and, and it, it is under the right conditions, uh, uh, safe to store. 
but if it's not stored properly, then it start and it gets a little wet, like if some moisture is uh, introduced, that the um, the crystals, because they they're they're like beads, so they're manufactured like little beads. They they look like cooking salt, um, and if they absorb moisture, then they start to stick together and they become like a huge rock of ammonium nitrate. And it's when they become a huge rock that they can um, trigger an explosion. So if they if there's some kind of a heat source or some sort of fire that develops nearby, uh, then that big big rock of ammonium nitrate can can be can cause the explosion. Um, the explosion produces an area of high pressure that travels faster than the speed of sound, shattering glass, injuring people. So, uh, where did this ammonium nitrate come from? Well, it was confiscated uh, by the Lebanese government um, from a ship that had been disabled and then um, eventually abandoned. And they stuck it in a warehouse and. Um, and so the investigation is ongoing. This particular uh, article is um, is recent um, because it came out uh, that uh, it came out recently because a judge in Lebanon had charged the prime minister who was in acting as a caretaker because he he had resigned already, but he's still there acting as the prime minister. Uh, they charged him and three other former ministers with criminal negligence related to the explosion, but we don't know the exact reasons why they haven't released all the information. The uh, French, um, United Kingdom, and uh, U.S. Uh, FBI had been helping them with the investigation, although, but the three of them have not released their findings yet. Um, this particular explosion was huge. It's, it's one of the biggest non-nuclear explosions in, the, in history. It was felt in Turkey, Syria, Israel, Palestine, and parts of Europe. They heard it in Cyprus, which was about 160 miles away from there. It measured as a 3.3 seismic event by the U.S. Geological Survey. Um, and they're saying, and this, it was reported uh, by a Lebanese broadcaster and Reuters news, news agency that the fire was started because the fire somehow started to cause this explosion by welding work that had been carried out uh, on a door in warehouse in one of the warehouses. So um, apparently related to welding. So for all the safety uh, experts out there, hot work and reasons why oh, we have reasons why we have shields and fire watches and reasons why we get rid of all combustible debris within, I think it's 30 feet, uh, when you're doing welding work, having a fire extinguisher around. Yeah, yeah know, knowing your surroundings. Yeah, I mean, they had a, a similar incident at, um, was it, I, I, this was quite a few years back, but at uh, PEPCON, right? And they were like a fuel manufacturer for, I believe, like the, like a rocket fuel manufacturer. And I believe that incident, like they were doing welding on the roof as well. And there was like a massive explosion there too. I mean, if you haven't seen these videos of, you know, the incident in Beirut and Pepcon, I mean, it, it is absurd. No, we'll check them out. We'll have them posted.
the Lebanese explosion, it happened right in the middle of the port. So see this picture. It blew a, it blew one of these big ships out of the water and onto the land. It it and one of the reasons why it was so destructive, I mean so one of the reasons why this is such a big deal for Lebanon is that it destroyed uh, their grain silos, which was like their reserve of, of grain for the country, um, which, is a, which is a big deal for them. It, the silo had 120,000 tons of uh, grain, which is a strategic reserve for cereals for the country, right? Like, um, these are things that should be protected, so... Yeah, and Lebanon wasn't in, in, you know, a good situation before this incident. You know, they were, you know, going through, you know, issues over there, like they're strapped for cash. Well, it's a political, they have political issues, right? Like half the countries run by Hezbollah, run, half the countries um, run by, I think, Catholics and they have a, a weird power sharing agreement. Um, so, so like a judge coming out and charging their current caretaking government is, is like a big, it causes a lot of internal strife because there's people saying that the judge is corrupt and blah, 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 blah. But the, the point is, is that this stuff was mismanaged. It's very hazardous. You can't just forget about these dangerous chemicals and think that you're gonna be okay. Like you can't say, oh, it's in a warehouse somewhere. You have to make sure it's managed. And there's plenty of other explosions in the past. Like Damien said, um, the, this particular explosion involving ammonium nitrate is the third, uh, the, it had the third most amount of ammonium nitrate involved in explosion in history. Um, the first biggest explosion happened in France involving 3000 tons. Um, the second biggest explosion happened in Texas City, which is right down the road from me, in 1947. And that particular explosion killed about 500 and it killed, killed I think it killed about 500 people. Um, but then more recently in China, a, a similar like, st like a storage location of, of uh, at a port, um, it was only 800, 800 tons. But I remember seeing the pictures and I was like, this looks like a nuclear explosion. Like it, you could see where the explosion started and you, it's baffling to, to see buildings and cars totally incinerated or burned up, not even close to where the explosion happened. Anyways. Yeah, that's nuts. I, I really feel like it's, companies should take uh, storage of chemicals very seriously and the uh, types of activities that can be done near those areas well you know well, yeah i mean the you know you see you got like the like the the record regulations too and you know just like stockpiling material right like you have to handle and make waste determinations but if you're just like stockpiling material like they can deem it as like inherently waste like you're not going to do anything with it right so you have like a, a certain amount of a time to come up with disposition for you know hazardous chemicals so you know that's one of the reasons that we have like regulations like that in place i think I'll, maybe even more related is the dhs chemicals of interest um, regulations 
where you have to identify certain hazardous materials over certain volumes and report them, make sure they're managed right, make sure you have security for them. For reasons like this, I mean, I'm not sure, they haven't said this was sabotage. This could have been, this sounds like maybe it was just kind of a random accident, but still you have to make sure it's managed right to avoid accidents or sabotage. So anyways, sad. Yeah, so they and they use like ammonium nitrates used for like fertilizers. See, I was just looking at like you know some of the common uses. They they use it in some of like those instant cold packs, not all of them, but some of them. Right. That makes me. So just be careful the next time you grab one of those and you squeeze <laughs> it gently. If you hear a pop, that's okay because it's supposed to. That's funny. Anyways, I, so the investigations are not over with. There's more to come. Um, it'd be interesting to see how they describe it, but we'll we'll put links out for like we have a couple articles related to this that we'll we'll show we'll post on our site but also there's one article that shows a uh, forensic analysis like a video it's a video that breaks down uh, the explosion that's that's interesting to watch so check it out it's pretty cool i mean it's not cool it's sad <laughs> but the explosion's huge it's it's amazing to watch the explosion but it's not something you see every day Good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so a little more on the environmental side of things. Uh, in April, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, they finalized a revision defining the waters of the United States. Uh, and in November, the EPA asked if so Colorado is a state that's challenging this new revision and they're asking them to just go along with this revised definition, which includes uh, four different categories of jurisdictional waters. Um, basically the new rule from Colorado's perspective is that it would handicap the state's ability to regulate water quality. Um, states are only gonna be able to consider a narrow range of impacts that projects have on the water, water quality in the surrounding areas, um, which means that those waters can have environmental damages um, and their water quality is potentially going to be very poor. Um, it limits the amount of information that the industry must provide. Uh, and reduces the amount of time the states have to make decisions or deny permits. So there's gonna be less government oversight on the projects and ultimately leaves about 50% of the US wetlands and streams unprotected. So basically no decisions have been made yet. Um, this was brought up in November, but so far the state of Colorado is saying that important protections are being left out of this new definition for waters of the United States. My understanding, because I, from what I've read, this, this is a complicated 
problem, right? Like Obama tried to clarify stuff because it wasn't well clarified before. But mm -hmm. even before him and then after he did it, it was still not very easy to understand. And, and, and from what I read, it's, it's very, um, like it's, it's kind of left up to the states. Like, so you got the federal government trying to, to create a definition. Um, so Obama tried to, ex I think, expand protections mm -hmm. and Trump is trying to restrict re lessen. Like, so like how, like, what are we considered considering waters of the United States, right? So navigable waters. And so uh, whatever Trump's definition is, it's, it's there's less, there's, mm -hmm. there's less coverage. Um, but ultimately it comes down to the state. So you got all these different states challenging this decision. And it sounds like um, at the end of the day that it's gonna be a little bit different depending on where you live based on whether your state challenged it or not. Um. Yeah, which makes it clear as mud. Yeah, <laughs> clear as the wetlands. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can, I guess, sympathize with people, you know, if they're looking at, you know, doing any sort of like development or anything like that, and you walk outside and there's a puddle there, right? Like, you know, if if they're saying how how is this puddle regulated as like a jurisdictional water it's a puddle outside of this building you know but there there needs to be pretty clear criteria because when you leave it vague then you know there's there's all sorts of opportunities to like have people be upset mm -hmm. i'm not sure after obama did it that it was vague i think that it was just well it was vague before, before like oh, I I don't recall the exact, you know, the name of the, the regulation that was put in or the interpretation that was put into the waters of the U.S. But he provided more more clarity around the definitions, is my understanding. Like he didn't really they didn't really change anything per se. Like they just provided some more clarity to, to to what is like a navigable water yeah they drew some lines in the sand like here it is you don't get to step over it anymore right and that yeah of course that bothers people trying to build stuff or develop stuff or start new businesses in areas that aren't developed right like yeah but it, i mean it is important because we all want clean water right um you know it, it, it's 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 always okay if it's somewhere else and not like impacting me, right? I'm fine as long as my water is okay. I mean, I feel like so many things are interconnected. It's I think you know more people should be concerned about not just what's in their area. You know, there's a bigger picture, and I think it's important just to have things like you said, just have them clarified. You know, that way no one's asking questions. No one's screaming about, oh, my area should not follow those rules. Yeah, it gets difficult when it becomes political, right? Like if everybody would believe the science and, and really understand the details, which I think for like 
the general public, it's difficult to do. Like, not only do they maybe not have the time to understand it all, but it's just not their area of, of interest or it's not their area of expertise. So you can find lots of examples of people not wanting to trust the scientists. Um, scientists have opinions too. So the, where do you draw the line? I mean, like water is water, like Damien said, a puddle yeah. versus... I think that the the definition, um, like you got you got running water, right? There's a river. That's a navigable uh, body of water that is easy to say. That's that's a that's a part of the waters of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, they're saying like wetlands next to it. Is that water connected? And 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 the Obama rule basically said yes. The water, if it, if, if you contaminate the water next to it in the wetland, that it's gonna reach the river some you know through all the different ways that it can it does affect the waters of the u.s um but in 1985 they basically said you know if you have like a wetland that's like abutting or like next to like a, a, a regulated water of the u.s like they're kind of together right so they're pretty like vague in that def- definition it's like oh if you're in the if you're in the same area we might as well like regulate you the same way but then 2006 you know they basically said it has to form like a, a like an actual um like geographic boundary right so you know it's got to basically flow flow into like a river there needs to be like a geographical feature that flows into like a regulated water in order to be like a water of the united states so there needs to be like a pretty clear path for you know, this body of water, which flows into this river, which flows into the ocean, as opposed to, oh, there's a, a, a puddle over here next to, you know, this, this river stream. Yeah, those are Supreme Court decisions, right? Or opinions. <laughs> um, very good. Another complicated issue. Tackled. <laughs> Solved. Tackled. But it's gonna get back up again and keep running. We're gonna have to tackle yeah. it again. Um right on. So well th- that brings us to the end of our discussion. Thank you very much for listening. Uh just just to kind of recap, we talked about uh a methanol chlorine plant explosion in West Virginia. We did an update to the Beirut explosion that happened in August uh, because recently there were some uh, government officials charged with criminal negligence related to that. And then we finished off with the um, new challenge by the state of Colorado to the uh, EPA uh, new definition of the waters of the US related to clean water. Of course, you can come to our website uh, subscribe to our mailing list. That way, when we send out these new updates, when we send out blogs or when we do new episodes, you will get them immediately. Um, and you can also see the links to the articles that we discussed. We'd love to hear your feedback about them. If there's something that you'd like to hear that we haven't talked about, please let us know. Fact check us. I mean, we're amazing, but occasionally Damien makes a mistake. Anyways, please subscribe. We would love to, to hear back, hear from you. Uh, we'd like to keep connected with you. And uh, have a great rest of your week. Bye.